Good morning. It's nice to be here back at Lake Howell Chapel once again. I would like to remind you of something else that might be a matter of prayer. Some of you remember our brother Buck Matthews, and some of you Hiawasa people would remember him. He had been spending the last couple weekends in the ER and apparently had some mini strokes, but not really impaired, but they're really perplexed as to his situation. So if you find in your prayer time to think of our brother and his sister Linda, we'd certainly appreciate that. My wife would like to join me today, but she's having some problems with gastrointestinal issues, so uh, you might put her on your list as well. little nostalgia here, if you like. <clears throat> the date was January 15th, 1967. Does that ring a bell with anybody? We don't have a lot of the younger folks here might remember, but that is the very date of the very first Super Bowl. How about that? And I remember that date distinctly because not only was it the first one, back in those days there were two different leagues, the National Football League and the American Football League, and they had merged. The Green Bay Packers of the NFL played against the Kansas City Chiefs of the AFL. Well, what I remember about it is that was the very day when the people who actually were involved in establishing this assembly were meeting in a classroom, and I was asked to speak that day in their classroom setting, and I was invited by Mr. John Cease, uh, who was one of the brothers there at that time, Clem Cooks, the Kellys, the the Willies, all those folks that some of you may or may not remember. And uh, they invited us over to their home for a meal. And, of course, that afternoon, the Super Bowl was going to be gone. It came out about 3 or 4 o'clock. Well, here's the interesting thing, is that I so much wanted to watch it. But I had to leave. Why? Because I was going to go to Winter Garden, where they were being in a classroom with their brother, Bob Harper. And I remember being involved in that little fellowship as well. So... My, you know, down through the years. Now, that dates me, doesn't it? It really dates me in a big way. But uh, I'm so pleased, so pleased this morning to see a thriving fellowship here at at the Lake Howell Bible Chapel. So much for history and nostalgia. Let's get into the Word of God. Philemon, the book of Philemon, please. Going to begin reading. Well, we'll start with verse 1. Philemon is one of those few books in the Bible that only contains one chapter. Philemon 1, and we will begin reading at the very first verse. Philemon 1, and verse number 1. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved friend and fellow laborer, to the beloved Appia Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God, making mention of you always in my prayers, hearing of your love and faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints, that the sharing of your faith may become effective by the acknowledgement of every good thing which is in you in Christ Jesus. For we have great joy and consolation in your love because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed by you, brother. Therefore, though I might be very bold in Christ to command you what is fitting, yet for love's sake I rather appeal to you, being such a one as Paul, the aged, 
and now also a prisoner of Jesus Christ. I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, whom I have begotten well in my chains, who was once unprofitable to you, but now is profitable to you and to me. I am sending him back. You therefore receive him, that is, my own heart, whom I wish to keep with me, that on your behalf he might minister to me in my chains for the gospel. But without your consent I wanted to do nothing, that your good deed might not be by compulsion, as it were, but voluntary, or perhaps he departed for a while for this purpose, that you might receive him forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. If then you count me as a partner, receive him as you would me. But if he has wronged you or owes you anything, put that on my account. I, Paul, am ready with my own hand, I will repay not to mention to you that you owe me even your own self besides. Yes, brother, let me have joy from you in the Lord. <clears throat> Refresh my heart in the Lord. Having confidence in your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. <clears throat> but re- meanwhile, also prepare a guest room for me, for I trust that through your prayers I shall be granted to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greets you, as do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow laborers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Here we have a really heartwarming story. It's Onesimus, a slave of Philemon, who stole from his master and then he fled to Rome. Now, we think of slavery as something quite different in our country. A lot of times people were slaves just because they owed a lot of money to someone. And then they became their slaves to work off what it is they owed. This runaway slave becomes a believer as a result of hearing the gospel from Paul's prison cell. Paul refers to him, whom I have begotten well in my chains. I remember visiting Rome and having the opportunity of staying in front of the building that served as the prison for Paul when he was there. We weren't allowed to go down into it, but we were able to just kind of look at it. There's one economical movement that claims that Peter was there with him, and of course, we don't really find any evidence of that at all in Scripture. Once an unbelieving slave, Onesimus, now becomes a help to Paul. He says, he helped me in the gospel. So then Philemon, what about him? Well, he was a man described by Paul as one who has love and faith toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints. Perhaps he served in the oversight there and the church described as being in his house, which reminds us that the church is not a building, but rather it's a called out company of God's people, the ecclesia who gather unto his name. Now Paul makes an appeal to Philemon to allow him to send Onesimus back, offering to repay the debt that was owed. Put that on my account. Some of the other translations put it this way, charge, I like that idea, charge that to my account. So inside of this heartwarming story, we find a basic doctrine. It's the doctrine of imputation. 
charge that to my account. The word used there, according to Mr. Strong, means to reckon in, set to one's account, lay to one's charge, impute. We find that word in the scripture and other places. Romans 5, 13, before the law, sin was in the world, or until the law, rather, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. It was not charged to one's account when there was no law. Now, like many, some of us try to rely on our background, some of our training, to illustrate basic biblical truths, and I'm going to attempt to do that. I want you to picture the master accountant. I notice our brother Steve's here, and I'm going to try to be careful, Steve, not to miss this up. But I'm going to try to use the analogy of God as the master accountant, the master CPA who keeps a record of every person. Man's account with God is a place where charges and payments are recorded. Charges in the accounting system are referred to as debits. Credits are referred to as, or payments rather, are referred to as credits. So kind of have a double entry accounting system. A debit simply means the left-hand side of an account. Credit, the right-hand side of an account. I remember when I took my first accounting course, the instructor told us a story that's probably been repeated down through the years. I Maybe Steve even heard this story. There's this fellow who worked in an office, and every morning he would go to his desk, he'd open a drawer, he'd take a look at it, close the drawer, and go about his work. And he did that every single day. One day he died, <clears throat> and they were wondering, what in the world was he looking at? Maybe it was something motivational or inspirational for him. So they got over there, and they opened the thing, and what do you suppose they read? Debits on the left, credits on the right. You see, he was an accountant. He wanted to make sure he was always dealing with the proper side of the account. Now, in the accounting scheme of things, we have three basic kinds of accounts. We have assets, we have liabilities, and we have equity, or what's known perhaps as net worth. The old accounting equation goes like this. Assets equals liability plus equity, or equity equals assets minus liabilities. Those debits and credits represent increases or decreases depending on the nature or the category of the account. To increase an asset, you debit. To increase a credit, on the other hand, you, you're to a, a, an equity, rather, you credit. Now, you see, here's the thing. God, the creator has an equity account for each person. And as the CPA of the affairs of man, he keeps a perfect accounting of man's condition. So here's what he does. First, God charges or debits each man with Adam's sin. The initial charge has nothing to do with man's state, but rather, or rather, I'm sorry, I just reversed that. The initial charge has nothing to do with man's behavior, but rather with man's state. This is based on the idea of the depravity of man. And some interpret that to be man is as bad as he can be. Now, is that really true? Man is as bad as he can be. Now, think about this just for a minute. All sinners are not alike, are they, in behavior? There are some sinners that are really kind. There are some sinners who are moral, they're generous, they're honest, they're considerate, they'll mow your love when you're away. 
compassionate, even sometimes empathetic. Then there are other sinners that are obstinate, difficult, unpleasant, hard to deal with. So you see, the depravity of man is not based on that, but rather it's based on this. Man is as bad off as he can be. Man is as bad off as he can be. It's based on God's estimation of man, not man's estimation of man. The writer Romans tells us how it all happened. Here's what Paul writes to them. Therefore, just as though one man's sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all have sinned, man is as bad off as he can possibly be. And this is emphasized again to the Galatian believers where Paul writes, but the scripture has confined all under sin that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. As an unbeliever continues to sin, his equity account on the debit side gets bigger and bigger and bigger. The debt keeps piling up and there's no mad remedy. It's a death sentence. Here's what Paul describes this condition to the Romans. He writes, Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the lightness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. One cannot try to balance his account by omitting expenses, by omitting charges. He can't pretend that there's no such thing as sin. He can't pretend that he's not really sinning when he really is. He tries to pretend they're misunderstandings or they're simple mistakes. But the word of God says, no, they're sin. And they pile up on man's ledger. There's an expression that you've probably heard. You've probably heard of people who cook the books. Cooking the books is just making phantom entries, creative accounting. Things didn't really happen, but you put them there on the record to make it appear as if they had happened. The old expression goes like this, figures don't lie, but liars can figure. You ever heard that one? Figures don't lie, but liars can figure. Now, you can't do that to the master accountant. You can't do that to him. Here's why. Here's what the writer of Hebrews says. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. There it is. And a Counting. There's no resource for a loan that would satisfy God's payment. You can't borrow yourself out spiritual debt. Gold and silver aren't going to make it because they're corruptible. Their values cannot be sustained. They rise and fall according to the world's markets. We now are hearing about inflation. Things are not near as valuable today as they perhaps were a few years ago. Back in 19, the 1970s, I purchased my first home. You know what I paid for it? $21,000 back in the 1970s. Want to try to buy a home for $21,000? You might buy a part of a mobile home or a motor home or something. I don't know. But certainly, that's the way it was. Now, here later on, that very same home is obviously great. So now let's talk about God's remedy. You see, God has a remedy for this problem with his lopsided account. It's a redemptive plan, and it's twofold in nature. First of all, the debt needs to be discharged, so that account has to be cleared. Secondly, 
Man then has to have a positive equity account with God. God's offer is available to every single person. And down through the years, there has been a very large window of opportunity. We call it the age of grace. Peter explains that, by the way, that window's closing. You know that? But down through the years, there's been a really large window where man could get his accounts settled with God, but it is starting to close. We believe, many of us, that we're living in the end time. But here's how Peter explains how God is so long-suffering. He says, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering. Or when is he coming? Well, he's long-suffering toward us. Not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance to get their account settled with Almighty God. Now God needed something that every accountant needs. He has to have some medium of exchange, some value from which he makes entries in this ledger. And this medium of exchange required a number of important things. First of all, it required something that would address the issues of life and death. As a creator, God equipped man with a life-giving substance. It's referred to as our blood. For the life of the flesh, God declared, is in the blood. Isn't it a shame the bloodletting guys hadn't figured that out long ago? Remember the old idea, you got bad blood, so we let out a little of that bad blood, then you'll get better. All you do is get weaker because it is the blood that carries all those nutrients throughout our body. So it had to deal with life, life-giving substance. It must be flawless. It can't be subject to contamination. It must be precious, not subject to a decline in value. It must have unlimited value, sufficient for the sins of the entire world. It must be efficacious, defined by Merriam-Webster's dictionary as having the power to produce a desired effect. It must be effective. It must do what it's set out to accomplish. And then lastly, it must be available to the entire world. Think about that. That's God's medium of exchange. This medium of exchange needed to reconcile sinners to God could only come from one source and one source only a holy, spotless Lamb of God, God's Son, Jesus Christ. He was the one, when John saw him coming, said, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. God's medium of exchange is precious because it's all sufficient. Peter refers to it as the precious blood of Christ, as a Lamb without blemish and without spot. John writes that not only is it unlimited, but it is powerful and efficacious. It has the power to to produce rather the desired result. And so John says, here's how encompassing it is. In his epistle, he writes, and he himself is the propitiation, the satisfaction of divine justice for our sins, but not for ours only, but also for the sins of the entire world. Now that leads us to a very big question. Why would God do this? Why would God do this? 
We've been talking about it this morning in their first meeting. John says, no, it's his nature. God is what? Love. That's what he is. And because he is love, God so what? Loved. That's grace, isn't it? Grace takes love and puts it into action. God who is love, so loved that he gave his only begotten sons for the purpose of having sons conformed to the image of his dear son. God wants sons. John said, as many as received him, to them gave he the ability or the right or the power to become the sons of God to those who believe on his name. The writer of Hebrews goes on and explains it this way. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, and bringing many sons to glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. And John goes on and rejoices in this great thought. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we should be called the what? Sons of God. God wants sons. So now, here's the execution, God's execution. Love drew the plan, grace brought it down to man. I love that verse in that hymn we often sing. Oh, the love that drew salvation's plan, God's desire. Oh, the grace that brought it down to man. Ah, love becomes operable. Oh, the mighty gulf, now it becomes executable, that God did span where? At Calvary. Now these, of course, because of God's sacrifice on the cross, Christ provided the only medium of exchange that allowed him to make two more capital entries in man's ledger. They're conditioned upon man's acceptance. He must confess with his mouth the Lord Jesus. He must believe in his heart that God has raised him from the dead. If he refuses, his account will remain lopsided, filled with a debt that he couldn't possibly pay. John's Gospel, John writes, He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides in him. The account remains lopsided. So, two very big transactions take place. First, the debt has to be canceled. God removes the penalty of sin in man's account by placing a credit or a payment in his account, removing the debt. Then he debits or charges Christ with man's sin-laden debt. That's imputed debt. Now, the first act of imputation has taken place. Charge that to my. Isaiah predicted this transaction when he wrote this. 700 years before it ever took place, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The Lord has laid on him, what? The iniquity of us all, imputed transgression. And Peter goes on to explain it further. He writes, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we having died to sins might live for righteousness by whose stripes ye were healed. The debt is canceled. Now man's account has a zero balance. Now you say, well, hallelujah. Now we have a zero balance. Who wants to be a zero before God? Anybody want to be a zero before God? So now God makes another great entry. 
because Christ paid the penalty for man's sin and bore its judgment, God then charges or debits the righteousness Christ secured on the cross and credits man's account with that very same righteousness. Now man not only is cleared of the penalty of sin, but he now has a positive balance of righteousness that allows him to live victorious over the practice of sin. And now he can have fellowship with God. Because of Abraham's faith, the scripture tells us it was accounted to him for righteousness, imputed righteousness. Then the writer goes on to tell us that now it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but also for us it shall be imputed to us who believe in him who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses, raised because of our justification. Delivered up because of our offenses represents that first entry. Raised because of our justification reminds us of that second entry. And here's how Peter expressed man's condition once that takes place. And be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. To the Corinthians, Paul writes, But of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. So here we have imputation, a act of God, forgiveness of sins, debt charged to Christ, freedom from the penalty of sin, a righteous standing before God, a believer credited with the righteousness of Christ, victory over the practice of sin, a righteous standing before Almighty God, freedom someday from the very presence of sin. Peter puts it this way, Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Now I'm going to close with this. There is a song, it's a really interesting song. It was written back in 1902 by a, name, by a man named Frank M. Graham. It's probably numbered among what we would call the country gospel songs. Maybe you've heard it. Has. It goes like this. There was a time I know when in the book of heaven, my old account was standing for sins yet unforgiven. My name was at the top and many things below. I went into the keeper, settled long ago. The old account was large, growing every day. For I was always sinning and never tried to pay. But when I looked ahead and saw such pain and woe, I said that I would settle, settled long ago. When at the judgment bar, I stand before my king. And when, the book will, and when he the book will open, he cannot find a thing. Then will my heart be glad? Well, tears of joy will flow because I had it settled, settled long ago. O sinner, seek the Lord. Repent of all your sin. For thus he has commanded if you would enter in. And then if you should live a hundred years below, even here you'll not regret it. You settled long. And then your refrain goes like this. Long ago, long ago. Yes, the old account was settled long ago. And the record's clear today, for he washed my sins away. When the old account was settled long. Let me ask this question. What does your account look like? Has it been cleared from the penalty of sin, the faith in Christ Jesus? 
that have a positive standing on the equity side, where you have peace in knowing that your sins are forgiven and a fellowship with Almighty God with the prospect of enjoying his presence in heaven forever. If not, you want to consider carefully that old account. Nothing's hidden. Nothing's hidden. He knows it all. And if you do not place your faith and trust in Christ, it just keeps piling and piling. And for the Lord's people, I simply say this, isn't it a joy to know that we have a righteous standing before him? When he looks at the account and he looks at our ledger and he doesn't see me, he sees my Savior. God sees my Savior, the hymn writer will put it. And then what? He sees me. God sees us through the righteousness of his own son because that righteousness has been imputed by the mountain as he made that. May the Lord bless the thoughts that were expressed this morning. Let's just close in prayer. Father, indeed, we're thankful for the fact that you keep careful records of man's goings. What is man that thou mindful of him or the son of man you visit him? Well, we know, Father, it was God's love. It was love that drew him from the ivory palaces down to this sin-cursed earth. It was love that allowed him to enter into death's door to provide the medium of exchange whereby lost sinners are now redeemed and purchased back. And then bestowing on us a risen Savior, the very righteousness of Christ him. What a blessing it is. We just pray again, Father, that these thoughts that have been expressed might be a real blessing to those who've heard it this morning. Of course, in Jesus' name we pray.